Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you in worship today. Good morning to all of you with us online. I know there are many of you joining us from many different locations. Good to be with you as well. Um, <clears throat> went to a banquet last night. I don't know if you know this. It's, it's a social phenomenon. When people get in a room together, we could all talk very quietly to each other and hear each other just fine. But as soon as the first selfish person in the room of hundreds of people raises their voice above everyone else's, then the next person has to raise their voice. And then 10 minutes later, there's 400 people screaming in the same room. Do you know what I'm talking about? My throat hurts today because of it. But I do want you to know, I wasn't singing during worship so that I could save my voice to preach. And I heard you singing. You're all very good. Or maybe you're just good together. But it sounded really good. It is good to hear the body of Christ, to stand shoulder to shoulder with people and profess the same truth through lyrics, to align our hearts on the same things, the same principles of God. I enjoyed being quiet and just listening to you. So keep singing. That wasn't in my notes. It feels like 2023 just began, uh, but we're in Lent now. And if Lent is a new term for you, Lent is a season in which we reflect on Jesus' 40 days in the desert being tempted by the enemy. Um, Between Ash Wednesday, which was last Wednesday night, thank you for those of you who came to that service, uh, and all the way to Easter Sunday, that's 46 days, but we don't count Sundays because those are days that you are free to break your fast if you're choosing to fast during this Lenten season. Why do we do that? Because Jesus was fasting during those 40 days, and so we can practice self-discipline during this season, and I encourage you to do so, to identify something uh, or maybe do so with a friend or a small group member or a spouse and fast something during this season, practice self-discipline and follow the example of Jesus. Quick word of caution, fasting TV between now and Easter so that you can spend more time with your children, that's not a fast, that's good parenting and proper time management. Um, So fasting should be something difficult that you really rely on God's help, and when you desire and crave that thing, instead you turn your attention onto the Lord. Here's what I would offer you uh, today. If you're not feeling it, you're not fasting it. If you're not feeling it, like I really need God's help to get through this hour or this afternoon or this day, without whatever I'm fasting, then it's probably not a fast. Now, if you fast television because you're currently guilty of wasting your life away on the couch, uh, you're, you're addicted to every new episode of every major show out there, that sounds like a fast. It does sound like you could ask God's help to break that addiction. Beyond fasting, Lent is a time of reflection. It's a time of repentance. It's an intentional time that we focus yet again on the life and ministry 
and sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. And of course, the Lenten season concludes with our celebration of Christ's resurrection. I cannot wait for Easter. I'm in a room full of believers, I think, and I said the word resurrection and you stayed quiet. So I'll just try that again. The Lenten season will conclude on Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, good. To help us focus on Christ's ministry, we're going to spend this Lenten season studying some of his parables. During my time in seminary, I had the privilege of meeting Professor Klein Snodgrass, brilliant yet so humble. Uh, If you ever find yourself randomly in a circle of New Testament scholars, just name drop Klein Snodgrass and it'll get you instant credibility with everyone in the room. Klein Snodgrass. He's a widely respected biblical scholar and best known for his excellent volume explaining Jesus's parables. In his book, Stories with Intent, he defines a parable as follows. The parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. Jesus taught in the most compelling ways. We we believe this. And my hope, our hope, is that we would feel arrested by what we're studying, by what we're looking at throughout this Lenten season. We'll see how he brilliantly awakens insight and stimulates the conscience and invites people to move to action. Snodgrass continues, Jesus' parables are among the best known and most influential stories in the world. Even if people know nothing about Jesus, they either know about his stories or have encountered their impact in expressions like prodigal or good Samaritan. Jesus was the master creator of story, and nothing is so attractive or so compelling as a good story. Story entertains, informs, involves, motivates, authenticates, and mirrors existence. This is where we're headed between now and Easter. And this is important to us. Roughly a third of Jesus' teaching in the Synoptic Gospels is done through parables. And as you read them, you'll notice three themes that emerge throughout all of his teachings, and they are the kingdom of God, the character of God, and the expectations of God. The kingdom, the character, and the expectations of God. And without the backdrop of these three things, parables will fail to make such, uh, much sense in our lives today. So I would encourage you, Uh, Get your Bible out. If you don't have one, uh, we'll give you one. We would love to give you one as a gift. But get your Bible out between now and Easter. Go to the Gospel of Luke. It has more parables than the other Gospels. And read at whatever pace you're comfortable with. And as you do, invite the Holy Spirit into your time of reading to open your eyes and to awaken you of how and where Christ is teaching about the kingdom of God the character of God, and the expectations of God. Just a little introduction on parables there. 
Now we're going to begin with a familiar one found in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the good Samaritan. And how many of y'all know that Scripture never gets old? Um, I, I know there are some of you who have walked with the Lord for 50 years and you've read Galatians like thousands of times. But thanks to the Holy Spirit, divine, fresh revelation, God's word never gets old. When we open it, he will always teach us new things, fresh things. That happened to me this week. I'm, I'm in a story that I've read a thousand times, and God gave me something new. Don't you love that about scripture? This side of the room does. Don't you love that about scripture? Come on, wake up. You slept later than the first crowd. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied. Don't you know if you're ever in a conversation with Jesus and he says those words, you have answered correctly. That's major points right there. And then he says to the man, do this and you will live. Pharisees, lawyers, rulers are portrayed in scripture with this appetite to test Jesus. This expert in the law was probably not even considering following Jesus, even if Jesus came up with some stirring answer to his question. He was testing Jesus, most likely to make himself look good. So we know from Scripture that Jesus often avoided giving direct answers, particularly to those who were putting him on trial. So he answers a question with a question, actually two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You ever heard the joke, why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? The answer is, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? It was funnier than the amount of you that laughed. I found... A New Testament scholar who claims that Jesus' tone here is actually quite sharp. And I don't know if you're like me, you can relate to me, but at times I can look at Jesus in the text and I can just see this calm presence, this welcoming, peaceful, uh, even a lot of times non-confrontational presence of Jesus, like he's here to smooth everything out, right? Uh, maybe it's because every painting that's ever been painted about Jesus to portray his actual face is totally emotionless, right? How could this peaceful man ever get aggravated or annoyed? Um, but verse 26 is actually packed with emotion uh, because what I read from this scholar is that Jesus's tone was not, well, what's written in the law, buddy? How do you read it? His tone was actually like, 
You're the lawyer. What do you think, pal? Tell me. Tell me what you think must be done to inherit eternal life. Now, this guy was an expert in the law, and he knew the answer. And he gives the answer. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Now go practice what you preach. Go practice what you preach. Or as you've likely heard, why don't you put some walk to your talk, right? This echoes Leviticus 18.5. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Notice, the issue right here is not what one must do to inherit eternal life, but whether or not one does it at all. And what we can learn from this lawyer and others in Scripture is that we can have all the knowledge. We can know God's Word and still not know God, right? Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Why does this man want to justify himself? Probably, probably, People were watching, and he got into this test with Jesus to make himself look good. Jesus has turned it back onto him. He's trying to turn it back onto Jesus again, maybe to save himself from embarrassment. And he asks this loaded question, who is my neighbor? The question, who is my neighbor, has an additional question found within it. If you're asking who is my neighbor, you're also asking who's my non-neighbor. Jesus, who's my neighbor? That'll also tell me who my non-neighbors are. The lawyer is asking, whom exactly am I required to love and with whom can I withhold my love? Who do I got to love? Who can I not love? Same question some of us ask as we approach family Christmas dinners. Who am I required to love? With whom can I withhold love? my love. Now this guy, again, an expert, would have known Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, which in the text identifies a neighbor as a fellow Israelite. Also in the text, identifies our neighbor as any among your people, okay? So he's asking, who's my neighbor? Who's my non-neighbor? If this was his intent, to ask Jesus if he could withhold his love from those people who were not his people, then the depravity of this man's heart is on display to see. That depravity and that wickedness has remained present through the ages. It's called racism. It's called discrimination. It's called xenophobia. It's identifying who are my people and who are not my people. In this moment, I like to picture Jesus looking at this man, possibly with a smirk on his face and saying, yeah, 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 you know Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, but come on, read 33 and 34. It says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Love them as yourself. We are not just called to love fellow Americans, fellow white people, fellow black people, fellow Asian people, fellow 
Latino people, fellow whatever class you are in financially people, fellow Republican, fellow Democrat people, fellow Christian people. We're not called to love just those who appear for whatever reason to be our people. We're called to love all people. All people identify as neighbor, not just the people who look like you, not just the people whose lifestyle you can identify with, or they make the same amount amount of money that you make, not just the people who vote the way you vote, not just the people who think the way that you think. All people. And that's the point that Jesus is about to make. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This Jericho road winds through rocky desert terrain and descends, right? It says going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, descends 3,600 feet. It was quite a journey, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been there, not on foot. I had a rental car, praise God. But robbers, robbers were notorious in this area and on this route. To be on this route and especially by yourself made you extremely vulnerable. Andrea and I spent part of a summer in Kashmir in the Himalayan mountains where we trekked and camped It was quite an experience on our way to a very remote Buddhist village uh, where we would stay. And right before our trip, I remember being told from someone in India, don't bring your wife's wedding ring, leave the ring behind. Okay, fine. So we leave the ring, we go over there, we're in the mountains making a fire, about to make soup for dinner. Hey, why do we have to leave the ring at home? This gal says, oh, there's bandits everywhere. (laughs) Thanks for telling me after we came. Um, And if they come upon us on our trek through the mountains, they'll rob us. I just remember thinking they can have the diamond ring, just don't take my hiking boots. We still have quite a journey ahead. Roberts and bandits were common in Jesus' day and still are in our time as well. And in this parable... This group got a hold of this guy and they got him pretty good. Now, one thing that the Holy Spirit taught me this week, because I've read this countless times and never caught this. It says he was stripped of his clothes. And yeah, it's also beaten, right? So when we see this story, we we start thinking, were his eyes swollen shut, broken nose, broken jaw, bleeding? Was he unconscious? We don't know. Jesus didn't get into those details. But I was especially drawn to the fact that his clothes were stripped off of his body. He didn't even have the dignity of being dressed. He was naked or naked for some of you. He's naked. And here's, here's what hit me. And I don't mean to be graphic, but anyone who came along this path and saw this man on the ground would have seen whether or not he was circumcised. Do, do you know what? This adds an entire additional layer of opportunity for discrimination because anyone could have walked by and seen this man and identified because he was not dressed, you are my people or you're not my people. 
And if you're not my people, I'm gonna keep walking. See all these layers. Jesus continues. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Just pause there for a second. Again, this is a long journey. He had a donkey. Do you know what was most likely on top of the donkey? His own goods, his own supplies. We had a donkey in the Himalayan mountains. They carried our tents, our suitcases, and a cage full of chickens that we had for dinner every night. Look at this story. Most likely, this man took something off of his donkey, hoisted the man up onto the donkey, and then where did his goods go? Onto his own back. He wouldn't have left him behind. So he's not just giving this guy a seat on the donkey, but now he's carrying his own supplies. I mean, let, let this story, let Jesus' parable come alive in your mind. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, <clears throat> I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The priest passed by on the opposite side, implying that he deliberately steered clear of this man. The Levite, with a calloused heart, left this man to die rather than stopping to show love and show mercy. This picture is awful. It's awful. And we have no way of knowing this, but the neglect is even worse if this pilgrim on the road was making his journey home from worship at the temple. What if he's coming home from the temple and here comes a priest? Won't even help him. Along came the Samaritan, who most Jews would have seen as an outsider or a non-neighbor. He doesn't ask the man, are you a fellow Samaritan? He just begins bandaging his wounds, puts him on his own donkey, probably getting bloody in the process. Oil and wine were important elements in temple worship, and the Samaritan pours his on the man's wounds, and he spends two denarii for this man's care, which is already roughly three weeks worth of groceries for that guy. And then he says, I'll come back. I'll come back and pay the rest. No limitations, no strings attached. The Samaritan here takes the form of a servant and it costs him time and effort and money and it's also risky. Why is it risky? This dude just got beat up and the people who did it could still be nearby. And he's got a donkey and he's got goods. They could come back and give him a beating too. Or worse, if the man that he was helping ends up dying... His blood is now on his hands, even though he stopped to help. It was risky. Are any of you fans of Seinfeld? 
Somebody said amen to that. All right. George. George once said, why would we help someone? That's what nuns and the Red Cross are for. So one application, I'm going to give you three briefly. One application of this text, of course, is that we need to have a helpful spirit to all people, no matter the personal cost. See, I see three philosophies in this text. The robbers was what you have is mine and I'm going to take it. The priest and the Levites is what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. The Good Samaritan's philosophy, which should be yours and mine as well, is whatever is mine is yours and you can have it. That ought to be the way we treat others. A second application is to avoid defining who is your neighbor and who is your non-neighbor. Let's just cut it out. Let's stop defining neighbor versus non-neighbor. Another scene in the Bible, another expert in the law tested Jesus with a question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The Greek word there for neighbor implies anyone nearby. Anyone nearby. So anyone nearby is now your neighbor, meaning anyone is your people. There's not your people and not your people. There's not neighbor and non-neighbor. Everyone is neighbor. And finally, a third application is that we always should be looking for opportunities to participate in the kingdom of God. As I said earlier, when we look at these parables, we're going to see the kingdom of God, character of God, expectations of God. From this one, I see that fulfilling the command to love God and neighbor might call someone to become the Samaritan, to become the outsider, to become the non-neighbor, right? In a hostile world, taking a risk for someone else. Because when I see in this text, when Samaritans help Jews, and when Jews abandon their prejudice and embrace their enemies, you know what that is, my friends? That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. I pray in the same way that you and I can participate in and experience the glory of the kingdom of God. Can we do that? Amen? May it be so. Let's worship together. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.